0: Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of WITS University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast aims to explore, debate, and understand a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students. We look at issues in South Africa, Africa, and beyond. In each episode, We speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject. And we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Mahita Ikani, and I'm your host.
1: Okay, my name is Gilda. I'm doing a master's in public health. I haven't really thought that far. At the moment i just want to get the masters done then i'll see i would want to do the phd just to become a bit more of an expert in a specific field of public health you know and that way be able to inform policy inform wider things because if i'm just masters i can work somewhere but i'm not really the brain child of that thing so yeah Today
0: we talk PhDs. Why do them and what do they mean for higher education in South Africa? Our guest is Professor Sue McKenna, who has worked in the field of academic development since 1992. She is currently Head of the Centre for Higher Education Research, Teaching and Learning and Director of Postgraduate Studies at Rhodes University. Prior to that, she's worked at Mangosutu Technicon, the Center for Higher Education Development at the Durban University of Technology, and also the Center for Higher Education Studies at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. <music> A very warm welcome to today's guest, Professor Sue McKenna. Thank you so much for joining us, Sue. Thank you. So the topic of our conversation today is the PhD, this degree that so many people aspire to, the highest potential qualification that anyone can get in a particular field. And you're here today to help us reflect on this degree and what it means for people personally, but also for us to think about the role of the PhD in the national education system and the national economy. So why don't we start with that second thematic? What would you say the role of the PhD is in the South African economy, in the South African higher education system?
2: Um, thanks. I think that there's an issue of the, of the reality of living in what's called the knowledge economy This idea that our economy is now driven more by high-level skills than it used to be in the past when manual labor was so much more fundamental to the building of an economy. And now that we're reliant on these sort of high-level skills, industry and the state are looking more and more to universities to provide them through qualifications such as the PhD. So I think that's the one sort of driving factor. But I think just as importantly, there's this idea that the PhD is one of a few different spaces in which we can really grapple with the complex social problems that we face. And that that is a space in which the university can provide some kind of input to society generally as sort of a public good an ability to look at the sort of messy problems of society and try and come up with some practical solutions.
0: So we're thinking of the economic possibilities, but also of the social possibilities of the PhD. Um, maybe you could expand a little bit more for us on the latter theme. So you, you argue that the PhD degree can really help to solve some of the the problems that we're facing as societies. Yeah. Could you tell us more about why you think the PhD in particular is necessary for that, rather than, say, master's degrees or bachelor degrees?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think it's not only the PhD, and I think that a lot of um, really important solutions come from spaces outside the university. I think it would be a problem to look to the university or to the PhD only as the space of coming up with some kind of, of solution. But having said that, I do think that the PhD offers a space Very intensive space at which, in fact, the Higher Education Qualification Sub Framework tells us that the PhD is meant to contribute knowledge at the boundaries of the field. So that's really the space at which we're asking individuals and collectives of PhD scholars to have a a grasp of all the thinking, the current thinking around the phenomena that they're studying, and to just push that boundary a little bit further, to think a little bit beyond what we already know. So I think that's what the PhD offers perhaps more than any other qualification.
0: Okay, so there's a certain type of research that happens at a certain level in a PhD that is arguably necessary for us to work out Uh, solutions to problems like health problems, or building, or architecture, or agriculture.
2: Indeed, and I think that's important to hold on to, because increasingly, the way universities are structured, I think, is fairly managerialist, and we're very concerned in these sort of resource-constrained times about funding issues, and we're very concerned about throughput, because that's how the funding works. You know, the universities get funding as students graduate, and I think that pressure to get throughput can sometimes work against a sort of awareness that our real role is to contribute to knowledge production. And and equally, there's a concern that that knowledge production is sometimes only thought about in terms of industry benefit, in terms of how quickly we can transform that knowledge into intellectual property, into something that can be useful in a direct way for the economy, in terms of industry. And I think we must never lose the space for the PhD to contribute to understandings and knowledge that might not have immediate industry or financial rewards, but that can help us as a country. And as you say, around issues like health and education and the kinds of complex, what they call wicked problems that perhaps don't necessarily have immediate financial benefits, but you know, will provide for some kind of well-being for the people of the country.
0: Right. I can imagine some people listening might be thinking, you know, PhDs are very long degrees, they're very intensive, they often produce knowledge that's extremely specialised. And then when we look around us in a country like South Africa, and not only South Africa, I think this would go for any developing economy, that we look around and we see huge rates of unemployment, we see huge problems with the primary education system. And sometimes it might be hard to kind of see the relevance of a degree like a doctorate when, you know, there are people who are battling to just make a living and support their families and find decent housing. So how, how do we make an argument for the importance of trying to develop the really specialized kind of knowledge I mean, I I
2: think that's absolutely right. And I think that we can't ignore the fact that we've got quite significant social ills in the country and we've got uh, a real problem with sort of basic education. So, of course, there's a very clear argument to be made that that's where we should be spending a lot of our attention and a lot of our taxpayer funding. But I also think we need to consider this role that the PhD has in an economy as a whole. I mean, it's used by the World Bank as one of the indicators of economic stability. I think that's fairly contentious in a way because I'm not sure if having a lot of PhDs comes from already having economic stability or whether it actually drives economic stability. But certainly we do need to consider in South Africa, we have only 30 PhDs per million in the population. We can compare that to Korea, which has a comparable population size. And Korea has 240 PhDs per million and we can compare it to Brazil. In Brazil, a single university, the University of Sao Paulo, produces almost the same number of PhDs per year as the whole of South African higher education does. So clearly, if we do some kind of international comparisons and if we believe that the PhD is an important factor in addressing social concerns, and driving the knowledge economy, we can probably argue that we need not just a few more, we need tens of thousands more. At the moment in South Africa, we produce about 2,000 PhDs per year, and the National Development Plan calls for us to produce 5,000 PhDs per year by 2030, which is probably an unrealistic goal, but I think it gives some indication of the extent to which the PhD is understood to be a significant factor in a sort of thriving, stable economy.
0: Hmm, That's really, really interesting. So what do you think are some of the practical steps that we can take in order to increase the output of PhDs in our country?
2: I think there's a number of factors. Some are kind of outside of the responsibility or outside the realm of power of the university and some of which are inside. Certainly the main one I would say is funding. Uh, I mean a recent study undertaken by cluter Shepard, and Mouton which came out at the end of 2015 looked at the PhD education in South Africa and argued quite strongly that probably the major constraint is that of funding. We've got very limited funding available for PhDs and those few scholars who are lucky enough to get funding, generally the amount is really small. And that's one of the reasons why in South Africa, the vast majority of our PhDs are older people and they are doing it part-time. So we don't have a lot of scholars who are able to sort of stay in the system and keep going from honours to masters and from masters to the PhD. Generally, they have to get out there and start earning money. That it's just not financially possible to stay in the system, and if and when they manage to get round to doing a PhD, they're having to do this alongside their jobs and and their other commitments.
0: So there are actually these huge barriers to entry, which is hugely frustrating. I mean, I think about some of my own PhD students who I supervise, and I reflect on how hard it was for them to get into the system. These are, you know, brilliant young people who are at the top of their class who are graduating MAs with distinctions, yet who are struggling to register because they don't have any security about whether or not their fees will be paid, never mind how they're going to pay their rent for the next three or four years. And there's something just so deeply unjust and and kind of silly about the fact that we're making it impossible for some of our brightest and best to get into the, the system that will help them to fast track to a completed PhD. Absolutely. And and we know that one of the strongest correlations between who actually gets
2: through the system is age. So the younger you are when you do your PhD, the more likely you are to complete it. And I think that's for obvious reasons, because those of us who come to the PhD when we're older, we're trying to juggle that alongside, you know, paying the bond and dealing with family responsibilities and holding down a job. So certainly it would seem that the younger you're able to do it, the more likely you are that you're doing it full time and the more likely you are that able to commit far more of your headspace to the PhD and the more likely you are to complete. So I I do think that this is a a major factor is is the amount of funding that's, that's
0: available. Students have put this on the top of the agenda for over a year now and I suspect it's going to become a very high profile issue again when October swings around. But the fact that postgraduate students in particular have to pay fees has always kind of boggled my mind a little bit. Because we hear from the university administrators and from the government that we must increase throughput, right? We need more MAs and more PhDs to graduate every year. Yet these are the very same students who are expected to pay very high fees in order to access the privilege of doing a a, a high level postgrad degree.
2: Yeah. I'm not sure that fees is actually the major constraint, though, to be honest. Because a number of universities of technology, for example, do not charge fees at postgraduate level. So your PhD, once you accept accepted into the doctorate, it's, it's, there's no fees attached. And comparatively, the PhD in South Africa is really cheap compared to the undergraduate and certainly compared to other countries. So I'm not sure if it's fees, although, of course you know, having to come up with fees where you have to pay them is always going to be difficult. I think it's more about the fact that by the time you come to the PhD, you're at a certain age where typically you are kind of no longer able to rely on family structure to support you. You're expected to be able to pay for your accommodation yourself. You may even by that stage have family responsibilities yourselves. And certainly a lot of our scholars, first generation scholars, are being looked to by their family to get out into the workplace and to start providing. And so having been the first in the family to get to university, when you get a degree, you can go out and get work and earn much more than your classmates who never made it into university. So to then negotiate with your family to continue studying, I think, is, is, a, is a really tough call. And perhaps the payoff is not enough. And I guess I think that's the real issue around funding at postgraduate level. It's fees, sure, but I'd say more than fees. It's about um, about living expenses. It's about having really decent Kind of scholarships. I think the NRF scholarship is 160,000 rand a year if we look at Scandinavian countries, of course, I understand it's a completely different context in terms of their resource base, but there your PhD scholars are on a full academic salary, a very different space in which to be able to do the PhD. So I think, yeah, I think it's about broader funding than just fees.
0: Those are very good points. I mean, the PhD is not only a long investment in terms of time, but it's one that pays off quite slowly and possibly not very well in the long term. Um, and I can imagine for someone listening who's top of their class, you know, really brilliant graduates an MA with distinction and they consider either spending another 4 years kind of battling financially to get through it and then maybe getting an academic job maybe not or going into industry and getting an excellent salary and re- and respect and prestige that it might seem like a no-brainer.
2: South Africa still has one of the highest sort of graduate rewards in the world which means that the relationship between getting a university qualification and getting employment is very very strong. So we do people keep talk sort of um, Graduate unemployment. And that is a problem, but it's nowhere near as much of a problem in South Africa as it is in the UK. So there's still a huge premium in getting an undergraduate qualification in South Africa. Your life chances are significantly higher in terms of salary, in terms of promotion possibilities, in terms of employment in the first place. But that doesn't necessarily continue to sort of increase alongside the additional commitment of another four years serious study. So I think it's important that we acknowledge that a PhD is, I think, I don't want to say it doesn't have benefit in the workplace or in terms of career opportunities. Of course it does. But I think there has to be more than that as the kind of main motivator, because I'm not sure that the investment, if that were your only motivation, is going to be significant.
0: That's so interesting. So we have a government right now who's trying to talk the talk of increasing the numbers of PhDs in the country kind of, you know, per million citizens, right? I think that was the statistic you used, that yes. we want 5,000 a year by 2030. Right. What is the government in particular doing in order to help actualize that? Because we're going to have to make doing a PhD much more attractive, much more worthwhile in order to attract the best students into those positions and into those research trajectories. Are we seeing the support that we should be seeing from the government in terms of how to reach those goals?
2: I don't think we are in terms of the amount of funding that's available to our PhD scholars. I definitely don't think we have the kind of financial backing that we need. But having said that, there's also a constraint within the universities, a major constraint, and that is that we don't necessarily have spaces for these PhD scholars. Only 36% of South African academics have got PhDs themselves, and that's very unevenly spread. So your research intensive universities would have about 50% of their staff would have PhDs down to some of the the newer universities of technology might be all the way down to 12%. Um, But on average, it's 36%. So if we're wanting to increase the number of PhDs, we've got to have good support structures within the universities in terms of quality supervision. And I think that that's also where we need to be spending a lot of time, focus, money, is developing the capacity within the universities to take in more students.
0: So does that translate to putting more pressure on academics who are in kind of tenured or confirmed positions within South African universities who don't have PhDs to get them? Or does it mean kind of importing more PhDs or ensuring that, you know, from this point on, we only hire people with PhDs? Yeah, I think we are
2: seeing that. I mean, some people call that academic inflation and and sort of
0: question whether that's the
2: right way to go. But we are seeing that more and more that you won't see an advert for an academic position or you're unlikely to see one now that will take you into a permanent academic post without a PhD or it will have getting a PhD attached as a condition. But one of the things the government is doing is through the NGAP gap Project, the new generation of academic professionals, I think that stands for, where the government is giving uh, universities funding to bring in young black academics. And over a six year process, those academics will be supported in terms of developing teaching expertise, but more importantly, will be supported through having a lighter lecture load in order to get their PhDs. So I think there certainly are strategic drivers that are being put in place to address this. I guess. We've just been slow. We've been slow to do this. It's happening now. It's probably not happening enough. It's probably not enough money being spent on it. And I guess it's more a case of why didn't we start doing this 20 years ago? But it is happening now.
0: Those are some promising developments. But I'm thinking a little bit right now about colleagues who are in the system, who have been working at your VITS or your UJs or your universities of technologies for a decade or two decades, perhaps, but who don't have PhDs yet who have been contributing hugely in terms of teaching and training and who might now start to be feeling quite threatened or unsettled by this new, well, (laughs) newish emphasis on PhDs as being the kind of be-all and end-all of an academic qualification. What do you think their kind of position is at the moment? And do you think that they should be scrambling to get and complete PhDs in order to remain competitive? Or is there still a role for them?
2: Yeah, it's very tricky because I think different institutions have approached this differently. Some have gone the route of giving their academics a sort of time frame in which to get the PhD. And I really feel for those academics because in some cases, for example, in in some universities of technology, you'll have academics who, as you say, have been in the system for 20 years who are hugely valuable in terms of their connections with industry, in terms of their really up-to-date knowledge of what's happening in industry and their ability to try Translate that into their curricula. So I think that that value is perhaps it might feel that that's being somewhat dismissed by suddenly being told, yeah, but actually you don't have the PhD and you need to get it. I mean, it's not only in the in, in the University of Technology. Another clear example is in the medical schools. I mean, most of your academics in the medical schools, including your professors, don't have PhDs. They, you know, they'll be practicing doctors in a hospital and be bringing that experiential knowledge into the classroom. I think having some kind of blanket ruling that all academics have to have PhDs is is problematic. But having said that, I also think that if we want to build the PhD, we need to find spaces to support those staff who are coming into the system or who have been in the system for a while and are keen to get the PhD. We need to make a very clear system of support for them.
0: So I mean, anyone who may be considering doing a PhD, who's listened to our conversation for the last little while, might feel a little... Discouraged. They might think, well, it may not be financially worth it. It takes a huge amount of time. There's not that much funding out there. Um, yet still, you know, many, many people are very motivated to go ahead and do PhDs. So what do you think motivates them in the face of the many challenges that are around us to to take on this this project and this kind of trajectory.
2: Yeah, and I hope I haven't sounded too much like a doomsday kind of
0: person about the PhD. It's a tough journey. Me too. I also hope I haven't sounded too... <laughs> Full of doom.
2: <laughs> I mean, it is a tough journey. And I, and I do often say to people, do you want to have a PhD or do you want to do a PhD? Because those are quite different things. And I think, I mean, we shouldn't knock the fact that it's the only qualification which your title actually changes, you know, your actual name changes. So it really is an identity journey. And becoming doctor somebody is important to a lot of people. And I, and I don't want to knock that aspect. But obviously, that aspect is not going to be enough to sustain the kind of level of commitment and time and energy. That that you have to put into the PhD. But for a lot of people, I mean, the PhD is really, when I say it's an identity journey, it, it's a tough one, but it's a really satisfying one. And I think often. In the middle of it, um, people say, oh, this is terrible. Why am I doing it to myself? But almost always afterwards, you know, a lot of people speak about how their kind of worldview has shifted, how their understanding of their phenomena is just so much deeper, how they've been able to contribute in meaningful ways, not necessarily through the thesis itself, but through the process of writing that thesis. They've now kind of understood how to how to produce knowledge and how to take part in whatever industry or or social group or wherever it is that their PhD, whatever group that PhD speaks to, that PhD journey has given them a power to actually do something meaningful. So I think that that word passion is thrown around quite glibly. But I do think that for a lot of people, it's, it's about having a passion. It's about really wanting to commit to Finding out, it's a, it's a questioning, kind of critical lens on the world. And in some ways, it's a tough journey, but in some ways, it's a really indulgent one. It's saying, you can have this time, this space, this structure, this support to really make sense of this complex phenomenon. And I mean, I think
0: that's quite a gift. It is a gift. And I mean, having done one myself, I, I know that it is, an, like you say, an incredibly rewarding, but also incredibly challenging journey. So you recently did a piece of research where you try to understand from PhD scholars themselves who are busy doing their PhDs, how they're coping, how they manage their time, how they deal with almost the emotional labor that comes along with the intellectual labor. Can you tell us a bit more about that research project of yours?
2: Sure. I mean, there's quite a few. This was looking at PhDs experiences, and in a way, some of the findings ended up being kind of tips for future um, PhD scholars. But how people navigated this process, I mean, just on a practical level, we've got to think about the fact that the PhD is, is 360 credits. So in South Africa, that means 3,600 notional hours. Now, this idea of notional hours is, is kind of a strange one. It, it kind of means that the average person starting a PhD needs to think about finding 3,600 hours in which to do it. If you're doing a PhD in an area where you've got a lot of expertise, you've already done research, maybe you don't need the full 3,600 hours. If you've changed disciplines and you're going into a PhD without a strong background in that discipline, maybe you need more than 3,600 hours. But that equates to, if, if you are the average, the notional 3,600 hours, that equates in a the, in the four-year PhD to 800 hours a year. So as I said, many South Africans are doing their PhDs part-time. So in a part-time PhD, you need to find 16 hours a week to do this PhD? And that's on top of family and work commitments. So that's a huge ask that we're putting on people. And in that study, we are speaking to PhD scholars about how they navigate the process. One of the clear things that they said was, firstly, they weren't sure how to use that time because you often think about your PhD study in terms of the practicalities of collecting data or, you know, the actual analyzing data, whereas most of those hours are spent reading and writing. So that was the first thing that they sort of needed to understand and make sense of for themselves, that the bulk of their time is actually sitting and reading and writing. And much of that writing is just going to be for themselves to figure out what the heck they think about this phenomenon that they're studying. So a lot of those hours are not necessarily going to be words in a paragraph in a chapter that finds its way into the thesis. Um, So that was the first thing. Another thing that they spoke about was the need to negotiate time for the PhD from the beginning to have conversations with their boss and their colleagues. Many, many of PhD scholars in South Africa are academics, as, as we said earlier. So many academics who don't have the PhD are now trying to get the PhD. So often that discussion with colleagues and the boss It's a somewhat easier one because you're in a context that understands and values the PhD. I think it's a bit harder for people working in industry to have that conversation. But certainly the studies seem to indicate it's important that you speak to your colleagues, that you explain why you want to do it, that you kind of win them over. And, of course, if you've been the kind of lovely colleague who's generously picked up the dropping balls for your mates in the past, they'll be more, more likely to do that for you. So I think that, if you know, if you, if you can help out other people, they're more likely to help you out in terms of picking up bits of work when you're meeting big deadlines for the PhD and conversations with the family. That was absolutely essential and in the data it came up a lot. This idea that you need to speak to your spouse or your partner or your children or whoever you share a home with and speak about what kind of time you need and how you need it and why you need it. And if you're in a family that doesn't know what a PhD is or what it's for, it might be harder to sort of justify why are you sitting on a Saturday morning in your room on, on the laptop when the family is in the lounge. So having those conversations certainly in the data seemed to be a big one, particularly for the woman. The woman in my study, even in this day and age, it was very clear that they had more work to do to negotiate with their family around responsibilities that in many cases, they were the only person in the family doing all the shopping, all the cooking, all the cleaning, and having to change that family dynamic and get other family members to pick up on some of these responsibilities was quite a tough process for them.
0: Wow. So I mean, it's really helpful to think about the PhD in terms of you know hours per week and over a kind of long-term period to really, for people who are considering doing it, to really understand the investment of time. But also this emotional labor that you're describing, that especially women have to take up, is fascinating. That it's, it's not simply a matter of registering for a degree and finding the funding. That There are all of these other things one has to kind of reorganize and negotiate mm-hmm. in one's life in order to be successful at it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't want to um, over-emphasize this this aspect because it it plays out very differently for different women. But there were two um, women that I spoke to that really you know, sort of stay in my mind. And the one was the the difficulty, the challenge she had in terms of her husband not being on board in terms of the PhD and really feeling quite resentful of the time that she spent on the PhD. And it ended up being a real tension in their marriage. And, And so that was something that I wondered if it if it's possible to kind of more openly negotiate these things up front and the other woman was was uh, spoke to me a lot about her sort of church commitments and sort of community commitments in the church and how it was expected of her that she would dedicate her weekends to those commitments and if she didn't if she tried to sort of pull back from those she felt that she was being quite strongly judged as not being appropriately behaved. And that was a really tough thing for her to navigate.
0: Those sound really challenging. And I hope that those two participants of your study have found ways to negotiate past those obstacles. Yes, I
2: can tell you that the one has already graduated and the one will complete this year. So there you go.
0: Fantastic. So there are ways of making it through these, these journeys. And I think you have some really lovely advice on on the article that you wrote on the conversation, which we will include the link um, in the episode note, how to kind of do it step by step and keep your eye on the ball, if if you like, to mix metaphors. (laughs) Perhaps just to kind of wrap up our conversation today, maybe you could just give some advice for those who are busy with PhDs, about how to keep it going, how to keep positive and how to kind of get there in the end?
2: I mean, I think one of the main things, and that's certainly come up, not only in the research I did, but in lots of other
0: research, is
2: that you can't do the PhD as the lonely scholar that we we typically kind of envisage, I think. You need to find... Some kind of support network. So you need to find other people doing PhDs. As much as your family might support you, they won't. No one will fully understand what it is unless they're doing it themselves. So find other PhD scholars. If you're lucky enough to be in a program, I think that's really the way to go because then you've got a sort of ready-made cohort of fellow sufferers. Can I say, or fellow? Journey- yes, let's rather say, a fellow journeymen. But if you don't, if you're not in a program, seek out other people, and if you meet. For coffee, every now and again, it might be to share information about the PhD itself, but it might also just be to chat about the process. So I think that's really important is to to find people that you can chat to about it. I mean, the other thing is not to ever let too much time go without working on the PhD. I think the PhD is one of those things that's always there. So if you're not working on it, you're feeling guilty. And you need to give yourself permission to not be working on it sometimes. You need to give yourself permission to have time off. And the best way to do that is having done a bit of work. So I often talk to PhD scholars that I supervise about the sort of 25-minute PhD And that's the idea that on your worst day, you just do 25 minutes. You don't beat yourself up about the fact that you haven't done the six hours that you'd planned to do, but you don't do nothing either. So you might get to the end of a day and you've been really busy or you just haven't felt motivated. And if you just spend 25 minutes scribbling some notes for yourself or reading through an article... Even if you are so tired, that article doesn't make much sense. There's something about the momentum of spending a bit of time on the PhD every day that has its own benefits, even if that little bit of writing you did or that little bit of reading you did isn't actually in and of itself much use. There's something about going in. I talk about keeping the PhD tame by visiting it all the time. And if you don't keep visiting, it's going to grow into a wild beast that just feels, you know, that you can't possibly cope with. And you're going to be feeling guilty all the time. So a little bit of work regularly is much better than this notion, well, I'm going to get sabbatical in three weeks' time or I'm going in a, a writing retreat next year, so I'll, I'll just feel guilty until then. Rather just do a little bit, a little bit. It doesn't have to be brilliant. Another tweet saying that I'm inclined to say to my PhD scholars is put in the quantity and the quality will follow. Don't self-edit. Don't try and make it perfect. Just try and put words on paper, try and figure out what you have to say, and and the quality can come after
0: that. Those are fantastic pieces of advice which are inspiring me also to keep going on my current writing projects. So relevant even to those of us who've done and dusted the PhD. Do a little bit of work every day and keep the wild beast tamed. I like that one a lot. Sue, so is there anything else that you might have wanted to add that we haven't had a chance to touch on yet?
2: I guess the only other thing is to talk about finding a supervisor, but maybe that's a whole nother conversation. But I, I do want to say that as people are rushing to do PhDs, they're perhaps not spending much time kind of investigating the various options. And there are very different PhD programs and different supervisors. And, and so take your time. Do a bit of legwork, look around online, chat to people at conferences, and and then find someone. It's not necessary that you you have to be bosom buddies with your supervisor, but someone that you feel you respect and and who will respect you.
0: Absolutely, and someone who will have time and make time for you and your project, and kind of be present and available. Right. So I think that's an important complaint I often used to hear from my own colleagues when I was a PhD student but I also sometimes hear from other students as they, they say are oh, my supervisors like not around they're not replying to my emails they're not giving me the feedback that I need
2: yeah I think sometimes um, people seek out the high flyers in terms of big academic names and those are our undoubtedly excellent supervisors that got good track records of supervising, but make sure that it's someone who's gonna be available to you. Having said that, you don't want someone who is so available because they do no research of their own. You want to have a supervisor who's an active scholar, who's actually participating in that disciplinary community that you
0: are joining. If only 36% of academic staff in South Africa have PhDs, then it seems pretty clear that our conversation today will be relevant to many colleagues who might be listening. We hope you found this episode useful And for those of you who are busy with PhDs or planning to start them soon, please keep going. Your colleagues are here to support and encourage you on your journey right up to the very end.
1: My name is Melissa Bennett and I'm studying a master's in fine art. PhDs are only relevant if you're doing relevant research and you're really passionate about it. And if your research is really unique and you're going to add something new and different to the field that you specialize in. I would like to do a PhD because I'd like to expand the research that I'm already doing in my master's degree in more detail. And I feel like having a PhD would mean that I could um, follow my career goals, which would mean going into um, education and research at university level. It would mean that I'm really knowledgeable in the field that I have um, researched and specialized in. I would hopefully be quite respected in the field of photography and art history. My name is Ryan and I'm studying a BSc Honours Geography. I do feel like they're still important, but not necessarily for my degree as I feel like I'll be overqualified in my degree. Um, I want to do remote sensing with regards to agriculture. and decision agriculture on how to improve agriculture with remote sensing and hopefully with drones. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at Wits. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments, and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Today's show was presented by Mahita Ikani. Research, scheduling, editing, and production was done by Balungi Thanks to Sue McKenna, Gilda, Melissa, and Ryan for their time. Jürgen Mikel created our jingles.